Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio, um, and it's just in time for another, you know, hour and a half of um, Radical Radio with um, the latest in sort of current affairs and politics from an anti-capitalist, you know, grassroots kind of perspective. Um, and before we get on to um, um, announce what we have coming up in the program, um, I'd like to acknowledge um, that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. Um, sovereignty has never see- been ceded, um, and this always was, um, always will be, Aboriginal land and um, this program will continue to support, you know, their struggle and um, for sovereignty and for treaty and for justice. Good right. morning, listeners. Lalita here as well. All right. So um, on the on the program, um, we have a number of things. Um, so we're going to have a recording of Julian Burnside. Um, I think Lali will be able to, you know, explain a bit more about where it come from because I um, wasn't completely briefed on that. Um, and then we'll also have an interview with Daniel Wallace, who is a um, trade union um, secretary who resigned from the Labor Party in Newcastle um, over their support um, for the TPP, the Trans-Pacific um, Partnership. And I guess, I mean... Yeah, so that's um, what we got coming up, and then we got we'll have um, discussion of all the kind of recent sort of headline news stories and different things that have happened over the past week. Um, and maybe the first thing I kind of want to talk about is um, is about public housing. Um, yesterday, um, the Public Housing Defence Network, which I'm part of, and um, I played a bit of a role in um, organising this meeting, um, had a meeting um, last night at the Brunswick Town Hall. Um, titled Stop the Public Housing Sell-Offs. Um, it was basically a meeting um, with a panel of speakers um, speaking in opposition um, to the state Labor government's um, public housing program, public housing renewal program. And to, to give a bit of background, and we've spoken quite a lot about the public housing renewal program on this free CR program, but it is basically, you know, a... Um, it's, it's being positioned as sort of like a... Um, uh, you know, a renewal of public housing states of refurbishing, but really it is a sell-off. Um, and it's a sell-off. What, so where was the meeting held? The meeting was held at the Brunswick Town Hall. Um, it was a meeting that was kind of given, uh, we got some support from the Moreland Council um, to hold the meeting with, for a motion in council. Um, and so we got over 150 people to the which meeting. Which is good. Which was very impressive. Um, it also reflects des- desperation because this, the current government has no desire to solve the homeless uh, issues mm. and, and the public housing um, issue has not been addressed by this government at all. Mm. They're going to social housing and, and I, I'm sure 
listeners have heard many times that social housing is very different from public housing mm. because of the percentage of the income that's taken in, into in-s rent. In part, social housing is very high. And apparently if you are um, willing to, to, to charge rent that is a few bucks less than the market value of the rent, then you can become an NGO whether you're a real estate agent or, or you're a religious organization, you can take over the contract and you can charge the um, tenants, uh, I think, one or two percent less than the market mm. value, which is a huge hike for, for mm. public housing, current public housing tenants. Mm. So it's and, and the number of bedrooms, the size of the rooms, all that stuff comes into it. But the thing is, the, the, the government is not helping people at this stage who are on New Start or, or any of the low income. Um, category um, to be housed. Mm. I, I've, I find that really appalling for a Labour government that's coming up for elections. They are doing nothing about the homeless people. So the, I'm, I'm really glad yeah. 150 people came up. So what did you all talk about? Um, so one, the discussion was basically criticising um, the public housing renewal program and what, um, the, one of the main criticisms we had that came out of the meeting was it presents this sort of failed kind of social mix approach, like, yeah, you know, to, re- to redevelop public housing. We must make um, – and to reduce the stigma of public housing, um, we have to make sure we build it alongside private apartments um, because what that actually means is the governments, like what they're doing for the public housing renewal program, is they're taking – um, state government land um, and giving parts of it to private developers to build private pro- um, pre- private apartments on it and then they're using it in exchange to build a minimum kind of increase in public housing. Yeah. In fact, there'll be actually a net decrease because there's going to be less free bedrooms and so what about all the families um, who rely on three to four bedrooms? They're going to have to be forced to live in two-bedroom apartments or maybe they'll have to live in two times two, like that was sort of um, that was sort of what Martin Foley or one of the government um, sort of officials sort of in response to this um, put forward as an idea if, um, for a family to have some kind of right return that would have to live in two times um, two bedroom apartments and of course there's the tearing up of communities um, there'll be some people who won't might not be uh, might not be guaranteed the right of return because of the net decrease in public housing mm. um, there's also the issue of the fact that you know we should have a program. Um, the government should be um, have some ambition to actually use the existing public housing land to redevelop all the public housing states and actually significantly increase um, the amount of public housing, especially with there's over 50,000 or 40,000 to 50,000 people on the public housing waiting list. Um, and it keeps More increasing. More than that, I can guarantee you, because I cannot get a ha- housing for mothers who, who don't have any houses to go to. I mm. have to send them to refuges, and, and that's so hard to come by as well. Mm. So that that's... um and. And I think the fact that over 150 people showed up, I mean, is good. Um, we and you know it was a mix of public housing tenants, um, residents of the community, all that kind of. So, and I think it is actually um, an important issue, um, not just for public housing tenants, because if we let the government get away with you know privatise a um, privatising you know public housing states, it generally will start to impact on you know people who rent. Um, because there'll be less affordable houses right. um, for you know young people, um, and you know generally you know or or this, but of course we need what um, for people in need. We desperately need more public housing, and it also does put more pressure on private developers. That's right, and and at, at a period when um, the gap between the rich and the poor is is, is widening. Uh, by a huge margin, and the, in the people who are being paid. Um, 
wages that are below living uh, standards um, or not living standards, a living wage. They're not give, being given a living wage, whether it's Maccas or, or cafes or whatever it is. Um, and you expect them to pay hiked up rent for a newly built apartment because you, you, you the government, chose to um, privatize public housing or semi-privatize it or go into this what they call a failed uh, model, which is public uh, private partnership is proven to fail in every country has been employed. Mm. So it never works. Mm. So that's a big issue. And we, I, I guess we can expect more homeless people if mm. this is going to go through. Mm. It'll be very, really, really sad. Mm. A few things to comment about. So hang on, but what, what, did you, what did you all decide to do? Oh, yes, that's the important thing. Um, yes. <laughs> so we actually um, we all voted on a motion. Um, actually, just a funny sort of note I'll make. Um, there were a few people from the ALP there. Um, and they didn't vote for or against the motion. So, mm-hmm. um, that was just a bit, that's just a bit of a funny observation. Um, but, um, the majority of the people in the room, they voted to endorse a motion that is, we're going to keep this campaign going to oppose, um, the demolitions of public housing. And even if, um, e- even like past the election, we'll continue to campaign against it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the practical kind of action we called for was um, to support a rally on the 9th of November before two, I think one to two weeks before the state election. Um, state uh, elections is November 12th. Yeah, November 12th. November 24th. 22, 24th. Uh, 24, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so like two weeks before the state election. And so we would organise a rally in the city um, on November the 9th. Good. And now to tell you a bit more about the way, because I'm, I'm involved in the network, um, it is actually um, – Going to be, uh, it's a rally going to be organised by a coalition of different public housing groups. So yeah. there's all been all these different local residents groups that's formed. There's been one in Ascot Rail. Um, there's been one in. Um, there's been one in Durban that's quite active, and they're going to be having their own public means similar to this at the Northcote Town Hall on Tuesday, the 16th of October. Okay. Um, at the Northcote Town Hall. Um, we'll what time? Do you know? Right in the evening. Six thirty p.m. Yeah. Um, okay. Northcote Town Hall is Tuesday. Um, 16th of October, but we'll get the exact dates again um, at the on the activist calendar. Um, and there will be other all sorts of different other public housing groups um, are also sort of part of it. So we're going to be all coming together to organise this rally um, on the 9th of November. And, you know, the meeting at Brunswick Town Hall basically endorsed um, that we support that rally. And I think, you know, if we can get 150 people into a meeting, um, and of course there's probably like hundreds more that will probably want to attend that meeting, etc. then we can probably mobilise them all, um, all those forces for a big rally on mm. Friday um, November the 9th. So I think it's quite exciting. So listeners are interested, who, who, who can they ring and... Where can, is there the yeah. point of contact or is there Facebook? Oh, yes. Um, just keep in um, touch by liking the Public Housing Defence Network page. Okay. Yep. Search Public Housing Defence Network on Facebook. Okay. Um, who are the group, who are the main org, um, group that I'm part of that organised the meeting yesterday. Okay. That sounds good. Um, now, I just want to give um, spend the next three to four minutes talking about this um, news story from Green Left Weekly. It's coming out in the next week's issue and it'll probably be, be a good lead-in for the Julian Burnside recording. Um, but this is about how um, probably um, some listeners have heard that, you know, refugee advocates are campaigning to stop the deportation of Huyen Tran, um, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly. Um, she is a Vietnamese woman who fled her home country by boat due to religious persecution in 2011. Um, while hearing on Huyen's fate um, took place in Melbourne's federal court on October the 1st, um, um, 
Ref- RAC's um, refugee action collective's Lucy Holland told a rally outside that Huon was 32 weeks pregnant when Australian Border Force tried to deport her in January. And, of course, this occurred three months after she was put into a Melbourne immigration detention centre, having been in community detention prior to that. And according to Honan, um, uh, a nurse who was on the plane with Huon protested her deportation, forcing AB Australian Border Force officers to abort the plan. And um, Hewan's husband, Paul Lee, told the rally that ABC, or Australian Border Force, not ABC, <laughs> I just read here. ABF. Uh, ABF, um, the Australian Border Force officers, took her into detention while she was pregnant. And um, she has been in detention for nearly a year. And her baby, Isabella, is now six months old. And, you know, this, you know, so to summarize the kind of situation, we have a, you know, a Vietnamese woman who could be potentially deported from the country or, and separated from. Her um, mother and not her her husband and um, her daughter and you know you know this is like you know this is just you know um, very um, troubling and of course we're going to keep up the pre- um, activists are going to keep up the pressure to prevent this store pre- deportation from happening and of course at this point the judge um, here in Hewan's case has reserved his decision at this point so it's all held a bit in limbo but of course the uncertainty of um, the situation is probably terrifying yes yes uh, I think it's it's um, to the shame of um, Australians uh, that in many other countries, including England and some of the European countries and even in the U.S., they're looking to examples, um, to the example of Australia about how to treat refugees in the worst possible humanitarian way. And Amnesty International has already said over and over again, Australia is in breach of Human Rights Convention at the U.N. And the Australian government is totally... Is, is ignoring that, completely ignoring it. We interviewed uh, someone from the Amnesty International a few months ago, and he said, yes, Australia is a complete, is, is in, in definitely in complete breach of the Human Rights Convention of the UN, and yet it's a signatory to the convention, and it wanted to become part of the Human Rights Convention panel um, at the UN. It's just totally contradictory, or it's a move for extreme conservative, extremely conservative government to take control of the Human Rights Convention penalty at the UN. It's just unbelievable the way the way Australia is operating at the moment. But anyway, mm. you want to take a break? Um, we'll play a quick announcement. And, and I'll introduce the... Um, um, and the, yeah, we'll play recording to Julian Burnside. Welcome back to... Welcome back to three, Green Left Weekly Radio on 3CR listeners, and thank you for listening to our program. I hope you you enjoy our program. So now we have got um, a recording that uh, I was able to obtain, and I actually attended this meeting. Um, it's the Ethnic Communities Council of Victoria. They had a, um, I think it's an annual meeting. They have the Littons who um, set up the um, ECCV, it was a memorial sort of a lecture. Julian Burnside, who people know very well and really doesn't need a lot of introduction, the QC, uh, who made a documentary on refugees across the world and how appallingly we uh, humans treat one another, um, he gave a, a, a an amazing lecture at this uh, meeting. So please um, listen to it because it is, 
absolutely captivating and the information he has has been collected meticulously and he um is very uh, passionate about fighting for refugees in his own way so let's play the recording um jacob at the end of the second world war eleanor roosevelt the widow of the former president of the united states eleanor roosevelt set her heart on creating a universal declaration of human rights she did that and uh it was embraced by the general assembly of the united nations on the 10th of december 1948 there are two interesting things about it first australia had contributed substantially to the formulation of the universal declaration of human rights and second it was of course an australian doc evert who presided over the general assembly uh when the universal declaration was uh embraced the preamble of the universal declaration is wonderful prose and i want to read you the first three paragraphs of it whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom justice and peace in the world whereas disregard and contempt for human rights have resulted in barbarous acts which have outraged the conscience of mankind and the advent of a world in which human beings shall enjoy freedom of speech and belief and freedom from fear and want has been proclaimed as the highest aspiration of the common people and whereas it's essential if man is not to be compelled to have recourse as a last resort to rebellion against tyranny and oppression that human rights should be protected by the rule of law well that's a message which we embraced in 1948 but which we seem to have forgotten somehow in the intervening years now I like to think that the universal declaration of human rights was a genuine reflection of the sentiment of the times um uh, both across Australia and across the world but if that hope is accurate it was betrayed in 2001 by the Tampa episode the Tampa episode which I'm sure many of you will remember was a sort of last toss of the dice by John Howard who looked as though he would lose government at the election which had to be held in November that year um the Australian government radioed the Norwegian cargo ship the Tampa and asked it to rescue people in a ship a refugee ship which had fallen apart or was falling apart in the uh in the Indian Ocean um the little ship was called the palapa the captain of the tampa was heading in that direction and he said later that when he saw this little boat falling to bits he thought that it might hold maybe 50 people he was amazed when 434 people climbed up the rope ladder up onto the decks of the tampa now he had a couple of problems one um the tampa was only licensed to carry 50 people he had 47 crew and 434 unexpected passengers second a number of the people were in various various states of health there were pregnant women there were a couple of older people there were people who were unconscious and here they are all sweltering on the steel decks of a ship in the tropical sun now christmas island is a speck of australia which was on his uh, route of travel and he thought that he might um put them ashore at christmas island so they could get the treatment they needed and it would overcome his licensing problem um 
It was known by Australia that most of the people, in fact, as it turns out, virtually all of the people on the Palapa, the people rescued by uh, the Tampa, most of them were Hazaras who had fled Afghanistan. And we all knew then, even if we've forgotten it now, we all knew just how uh, much at risk Hazaras were. It was earlier that year, in February of that year, that the Taliban uh, had destroyed the Bamiyan Buddhas. The Bamiyan Buddhas were constructed by the original Hazaras when they entered at the place that's now called Afghanistan. The Bamiyan Buddhas were a reflection of the fact that the Hazaras, who are thought to be descendants of Genghis Khan, uh, had um, arrived in the territory now called Afghanistan as Buddhists, but after some centuries they converted to Islam. They didn't do their research well enough because they converted to Shia Islam instead of the majority Sunni Islam. Um, and that was a distinction which was ultimately going to cause them a lot of grief. The, um, so here they are, a group who are visibly different because they look distinctively Asian and they're the wrong brand of Islam. And so the Taliban... Sunni Muslims decided that this was a group who had to be exterminated. Uh, it was blindingly obvious that these people were all, uh, or very likely, all genuine refugees looking for protection against the sort of mentality that says this is a group that needs to be exterminated. We have the same problem right now with Rohingyans from Myanmar. They are the subject of the most appallingly brutal treatment and, not surprisingly, they try and escape to safety. In any event, um, Captain Arn Rinnan decided to head to Christmas Island, but John Howard did a couple of things. First of all, he, he ordered the Tampa not to enter Australian territorial waters off Christmas Island. Second, when, when um, Rinnan, Arn Rinnan defied Howard, he closed the airspace over... Christmas Island, so that photographers wouldn't be able to get uh, close enough to take worthwhile photographs of the episode. And third, he issued a decree that no humanising images of the uh, people rescued by Tampa were to be uh, made available to anyone. The, uh, the actions of the captain of the Tampa resulted in a standoff because there was the Tampa in Australian territorial waters. Once he entered Australian territorial waters, Howard sent out the SAS who took command of the bridge at gunpoint and then there was a standoff. And days went past and a group of people got together and went to the federal court uh, to try and resolve the impasse the decision of the trial judge, Justice North, uh, was handed down in favour of the uh, people who'd been rescued, by the way, was handed down in Melbourne at 2.15 in the afternoon on the 11th of September 2001. And about nine hours later, the attack on America happened. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the political rhetoric in Australia is that all terrorists are Muslims, in brackets, therefore all Muslims are terrorists, and all boat people are Muslims, and therefore probably terrorists, and they are all illegals. That's when they start to be called illegals. The exercise of pushing them away is called border protection. So that for the average punter who gets their information about these from intellectual giants like Sonia Kruger and Andrew Bolt, 
we are being protected from criminals, which would make sense if it was true, but it's false. It's just a lie. Um, the uh, treatment of asylum seekers changed pretty dramatically at the time of the Tampa episode. Um, it is very strange, and there's a few facts that are worth knowing about our asylum seekers. First, it's worth knowing we have three streams of refugees who come into Australia. The first is the people who come in under our offshore resettlement scheme, which is a wonderful scheme. We reach out to other countries, we go to refugee camps in other countries, and we handpick refugees and bring them here, and we make them welcome. And it's very good. Not every country does it, uh, and it's wonderful. It can be a little bit self-interested and cynical. John Menadieu, who was the secretary of the department under Ian McPhee, um, once told a story against himself that he went to a refugee camp in Africa and he said to the leader of the camp, have you got any doctors or engineers? And the leader of the camp said, I said I'm sorry, we've only got widows and orphans. Um, the second stream are people who are able, by good luck or good management, to get a visa to come to Australia for tourism or study or whatever else. And as soon as they've cleared passport control at the airport where they arrive they apply for asylum. They are then uh, allowed to live in the community for as long as it takes to assess their refugee claim. On average, about 20 or 30% of them succeed in their refugee claim, but they seem to cause no difficulty in the community and most Australians are simply unaware of their presence. The third group are people who come from countries which are so obviously a source of refugees that they cannot get a visa to come to Australia. So if you're a Hazara originally from Afghanistan, um, probably living in Quetta in Pakistan, you will not get a visa to come to Australia for sport or education or any other purpose. If you're a Rohingyan from Myanmar, you will not get a visa to come to Australia. So the only way they can escape to safety is by using people smugglers, which is much more expensive than an aeroplane ticket. Uh, the, the third group... Uh, are the ones who've been the subject of intense political um, cruelty in the last 17 years. Uh, and yet, strangely, they're the, ones, they're the ones who were put into indefinite detention for as long as it took to assess their uh, refugee claim, they would be put in detention. They're not illegal. They haven't committed any offence by coming here the way they do. Um, and yet about 90-plus percent of them are ultimately successful in their claim to be refugees. So we ignore the ones who are probably not refugees and we punish the ones who are almost certainly refugees. If someone can explain the logic of that, I'd be fascinated. Um, it is uh, important to understand a few facts about Australia's refugee policy. First, we receive far fewer unauthorised arrivals here than most other countries get. Why? Because it's a difficult voyage. It's you know, eight or ten days by boat from Indonesia, which is the nearest launching pad. Second, um, they do not commit any offence by arriving here without papers to claim asylum. Third, most of them, as I say, most of them turn out to be genuine refugees on our assessment of things. Uh, fourth, despite those facts... We treat them like criminals. We call them illegals. We lock them up. Um, and 
the, the way we lock them up drives many of them to madness, self-harm or suicide. Fifth, a succession of coalition governments uh, have strenuously argued in court and successfully for um, a number of things which no democratic country should ever accept. First, the right to hold an asylum seeker for the rest of their life, if necessary, if they, are, if they can't be removed from the country and if they are not assessed as a refugee, the present law in this country is that they can remain in detention for as long as it takes, which may be the rest of their life. Um, I don't think even convicted criminals get life imprisonment as an actual lifetime. Um, second, the right to hold them in detention exists and is unaffected by the fact that the conditions in which they are detained may be cruel or inhumane. That makes no difference to the legality of the exercise. Third, um, the right to hold children in detention is uh, regardless of their age, their health or any other circumstances. And fourth, the right to send asylum seekers who failed in their claims uh, back to a place where their death is an almost certainty. Now, um, it's also often overlooked, given that now they're sent offshore, that the use of solitary confinement in immigration detention was fairly common. So here you have a person who's not been convicted of any offence, who is sent, who's sent off to jail, and in that jail they can be held in solitary confinement for weeks on end, if it comes to that. Um, I remember circumstances of one bloke who had fled to Australia. He was locked up in the new family-friendly detention centre at Baxter in South Australia. He was with his daughter, who was eight at the time. Um, one day they were in their cell in Baxter Detention Centre and a bunch of guards came in and ordered him to strip. He refused because, apart from any cultural considerations, his eight-year-old daughter was there. So the guards roughed him up and dragged him off to the management unit, which is just a series of solitary confinement cells. Um, the episode was in part caught on video in the common area, the, the, the grassed area between their cell and the management unit. There is video footage of this man being carted away by four or five burly guards while his little eight-year-old daughter throws herself onto the back of one of the guards to try and stop him taking her father away. Now, he's put in solitary confinement. The solitary confinement cells at Baxter, the family-friendly detention centre at Baxter, uh, they were two and a half metres square. They had no lining on the walls, no furnishings except a mattress on the floor. The occupant of the cell is not allowed anything to read or anything to write with, not allowed any radio or television or any other form of distraction. But they're not allowed any company or any privacy because they are video monitored 24 hours a day. And in order to achieve 24 hours a day video monitoring, the lights are left on 24 hours a day. Now, this man was practically going crazy with it, but he was allowed a 30-minute visit in every 24 hours from his eight-year-old daughter. And one day, after he'd been in solitary for a couple of weeks, his daughter didn't come for her visit. So he complained to the person in charge of the immigration department employee who ran the place, and he was told 
Don't worry, she's been taken into Port Augusta shopping. She'll be here tomorrow. But tomorrow came and went, and his daughter didn't come to visit. The same person who had given him this information the day before came into his cell and explained to him that his daughter was now back in Tehran. At first he, didn't, he, he thought it was some kind of sick joke. But when he was persuaded that it was true, because he was told, you know, if you want to see her again, you should abandon your claim for protection and leave the country voluntarily and go back to Iran. Uh, when he was persuaded that it was true, he had a complete nervous collapse. And he was in solitary confinement for the next eight weeks until even the government's own psychiatrist was saying, this is destroying him. That's the sort of... That's the sort of cruelty which our system is capable of and which is done with a very specific purpose because then and now Iran will not accept involuntary returns. So they have to work out some way <clears throat> of persuading him to agree to the idea of being sent back to uh, Iran. Welcome back to Green Left Weekly Radio listeners. I hope you um, felt better, on, I don't know, enjoyed that uh, contribution. I don't know, it's something that people generally enjoy listening to how we, the Australians and the Australian government, uh, we, we the people allow the Australian government to treat refugees the way they do. And that's just part one. In part two, um, uh, uh, the, what, what, what is addressed is the, 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 the current government's policies and also the history of how Scott Morrison has approached the refugee question and what are the current um, issues on the table in terms of a government, what it, should, it could and, and, and it's actually doing on the ground. Um, I hope you'll, you'll listen next week to, to the completing part of that lecture, which was um, quite heart-rendering. This is just the beginning of what he had to say about observing and and his research that he had done for his documentary as well. So I guess we all bear the burden of having elected governments that um, treat people with such repugnance, and I'm sure people with a conscience will feel guilty about it, but then elections are coming up, we have a chance to correct some of these um, atrocities. So let's move on to more news. We have... um, what do you want to talk about? Okay, so there's um, two different news stories, I think, um, that are kind of worth talking about. Um, just wanted to just talk about this sort of thing. You know, since we're talking about the ref- – um, we're just sort of been talking about refugees and refugee policy um, with Julian Birdside. Um, it was interesting, yesterday morning, um, you know, op- our opposition leader, um, Bill Shorten, you know, made a pretty positive announcement um, – they said that, you know, if Labor wins the next election, it will introduce um, universal access to preschool education for Australian free, um, for, well, Australian three-year-olds. And, you know, let's hand on a better deal to our kids. And that's what he sort of said at the posse. Your but, field, your field, Jacob. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think there's, um, there's a bit of, um, you know, there's a bit of um, there's a bit of irony on in this, and as Virginia um, Troll um, pointed Trioli. out, Trioli, um, pointed out to Shorten on ABC News um, breakfast this morning, um, and you know, and sure, let's um, hand a better deal to our kids. Um, but there also, she pointed out, there are a few kids that neither the government nor Labor um, has promised to help, which is the 112 kids still in detention on Nauru right, right now, and of course. 
you know, she went on and said, you know, the next generation of kids clearly matters to you according to that policy, but at the same time, you stand here today and you won't promise to get 112 kids out of detention on Nauru, you know, despite the appalling mental health conditions, their detention has created, despite calls from Australian doctors, the AMA, pediatricians and psychologists. Um, now, you know, so not all kids are equal, um, she said. And, of course, Bill Shorten's, you know, response, and, you know, I watched it, was, you know, you know, was to claim, first of all, they're two different issues, um, you know. Of course. Um, you know, you know, and then he went on about saying, well, I'm following what the AMA are saying closely. Um, and, you know, tried, well, I'm not sure what how they're The following. AMA has been calling for the children to be removed. Yep, and the Labor still has made no commitment. Absolutely um, none. And then, and then she went and said, um, you know, I, he said, ah, oh, you know, I think that you, you know, whilst you make that point about Nauru and they, apparently they're two separate issues, I think it's wrong to simply dismiss it and say that unless we do one, our preschool um, um, promise is not fair, um, not fair dinkum. But then, of course, that's what uh, Virginia was not saying that. You know, because you're not doing this, that makes your policy right. Just she was pointing, merely pointing out the hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, contradiction, contradictions in that. And um, you know, and you know, so let me caref- clarify, Mr. Shorten. It may be fair dinkum, but you've still got on your hands the fact that you and the government are prepared to let children languish in detention. And what Bill Shorten kind of said. Um, he made a bit of a fumbling kind of answer, as he usually does, on these sub on these um, sensitive matters. But he what he, he he responded with saying, "Well, you know, I think that the conditions of children on you know on Nauru are appalling. So perhaps we don't see." that differently on the issue. But of course, what he was not mentioning was he wasn't mentioning anything about how he is actually going to promise to get those kids out of detention. Because he doesn't want to. Um, and it's just like that whole, um, it was that, it's like very similar to that whole um, um, Tonightly with Tom Ballard's skit about um, the ALP sort of policy on, 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 you know, offshore detention where, you know, it's basically, you know, the government is basically going to, um, you know, the ALP, the opposition, their policy on refugees is that, yes, we think offshore detention is bad, but we're not going to do anything about it. Right. We're just going to look, we're just going to be very, look sad and uncomfortable while while we're doing it, basically, and implementing the policy. Say all the right things, but do nothing. Yeah. So do nothing policy. So just, and, and even this three-year-old uh, program, I, as soon as I heard it, I thought, yeah, but the, the experience on the ground for me is is a lot more um, complex because you can't just say that yet yeah, we, we let all three year olds go to kindergarten and and you know at the moment three and a half year olds go to kindergarten anyone above the age of three and a half so they're just moving it back six months and it's not free because you pay for it um, and these guys are saying it's going to be free. All right, so that's good. But what they don't also say is there are kids who don't go to to childcare. Many three-year-olds who stay home with their parents or their grandparents. Why isn't the government also looking at giving women paid leave to care for the three-year-olds at home, where they get a lot of emotional support and they are brought up in the in the way the parents want them to bring up. Not every child who's three goes to kindergarten or to 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 childcare. So it's it's a broader issue that they don't want to address. I don't think it's it's a it's it's. Uh, 
I think it's discriminatory to say that, yes, we will support three-year-olds to go to, go to kindergarten, but uh, we're not going to support three-year-olds to stay home with their parents um, and are being cared for grandparents or aunties or uncles at home who, who don't want the children to go to kindergarten. What are they doing about those kids? There are thousands like that because they can't afford to send kids to school. Mm. So the three, three-year-old kindergarten is there, which is probably about what, four half days, usually, that's what that's how they do it. Uh, maybe a little bit more, uh, things may have changed. But the fact is there are three-year-olds who, who don't go to, to kindergarten and they don't have to if they don't want to. Mm. Um, and starting school at five is also a bit of a obsession for some of these Western nations, whereas in, in countries like Sweden, kids go to school only at, at the age of seven. And Sweden has some of the, it, it has the highest retention rate in school of of kids anywhere in the world it has mm. so it, it's the model the whole model is 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 something they need to look at rather than just cherry picking mm. stuff for election purpose that's what this is all about yeah. so well I, I think the I mean I think you bring up some good points lately there because I, um, but I think I think the policy is good overall but I guess one of the issues I guess um, is the fact is I think you know these policies are always in kind of response to the pressure that you know a lot of working mothers actually have to work, yeah. um, they can't afford you know to. That's what I'm saying. They yeah, should yeah. fund mothers to stay home and look after the kids. Yep. That's what they choose to do. Yeah. Um. So there's no there's no really genuinely respect of that kind of choice. Yeah. Um. Because you know ca- you know governments are never willing to be uh, willing to let women have that choice. Yes. And I, I find it hypocrisy because they have been carrying on about parents' choice to send children to private and and public schools. In public schools, I think 75% of all, you know, children go to public schools are being impoverished at the expense of private school funding. And whether it's Catholic, Jewish, Muslim or whatever school they go to or the, mm. or the posh private Geelong grammar type schools. So where is the parent's choice when it comes to three-year-olds? No one talks about parent, parental choice. Mm. You know, it's, 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 a, it's a very hypocritical um, policy in some ways. It's good for the three-year-olds to go to kindergarten, which is great, but they also need to have choices for, for parents mm. who don't want to send yeah. their kids to kindergarten. It shouldn't be compulsory. Right. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, um, this might be for the Yeah, moment. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is another thing that will get you outraged, Lily, but, um, but this is uh, about um, the latest update on the whole Brett Kavanaugh stuff. Oh, and, God, please. <laughs> and so um, so Confidence says, this, and this was just actually just reported in the ABC at 6.40 a.m. on Friday. So things are popping, moving very quickly on this. Yes. Um, so Confidence has basically grown amongst, um, among U.S. President um, Donald Trump's fellow Republicans that Brett Kavanaugh will win Senate confirmation to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and this is basically after the filing of really what is a whitewashed sort of FBI report on the accusations of sexual misconduct um, by the judge. And, of course, um, you know, this report um, basically, well, apparently, the most important thing is the reaction to the support by the two crucial um, Republican senators, Jeff Flake and Susan Collins, indicated it may have allayed concerns they had about Mr. Coverland because basically this FBI report basically apparently clears him of these so-called well, charges. Well, how many days did they take to clear him? Well, apparently four, three to four days. They didn't even complete the one well, we given to them. Well, here's the issue. The, the, um, the report did not interview me- 
Mr. Kavanagh himself or Christine Blasley Ford, the university professor who has accused uh, Mr. Kavanagh of sexual assault in um, 1982. It certainly probably hasn't interviewed any of the other no, women who came forward. Um, or, the, or the witnesses that came out later mm. about Kavanaugh's behaviour as a teenager. Mm. And so now of, in response to this, um, you know, thousands of protesters, some holding signs say, be, saying believe um, survivors and Kavanaugh nope, rallied in front of the Supreme Court in opposition to Mass Kavanaugh, Mr. Kavanaugh um, and whose nomination has basically become a flashpoint in the Me Too um, movement against um, sexual harassment and assault. And, of course, there will now be a key procedural vote on Friday, which is happening now, and a final vote on Sad. Well, actually, probably not necessarily now. Probably that would mean tomorrow in the United States because the United yeah, States is a day behind. Or something, yeah. um, and there will be a final vote on Saturday to confirm the Conservative Federal Appeals Judge. Um, you know, so... This is, um, this is, I think what this kind of shows is that, you know, we can't rely on these institutions like the FBI. In fact, the FBI. No, set um, up by the current government. Um, the FBI has always really served the interests of the ruling classes Absolutely. in the US. And yep. of course, Brett Kavanaugh is a key, an example of someone who, of, of that represents the interests of the ruling class. And if it was, and as I said at last week's program, if it wasn't for these uh, accusations against Brett Kavanaugh, um, he would still be a terrible person for women because he's um, we- attempting to weaken, you know, pro-choice um, policies in the United States. And, you know, he's also presided over, you know, discrimination against African-Americans. So it's like this is this is someone who is a danger to working class women and working class people everywhere. Um, but, you know, not even these kind of allegations can bring some um, him down. It, um, no, because it just- the whole... The whole circus is set up to protect men like him. Well, Trump himself is under investigation for abusing women. He's got many, many charges against him. So at the moment, one can sum it up by saying that um, the USA is governed by a bunch of misogynists. And you can also, or in fact, abusers, if, if that is what um, you know, the women are claiming in the US, apparently. Um, so the, the problem we have is... The system is set up to protect them, whether it's the police, the FBI, and whoever else they have, the military, the Navy, whatever it is, because they are the ones who are defending these cronies in government um, who are under all sorts of investigations, and they can manipulate any investigation to their advantage, and that's what's happening here. And the fact is this this primaries are coming up it's a key target for them they wanted to get him in there before the primaries because if the republicans lose the 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 vote in the primaries then they they um won't be able to appoint an, uh, a person that they want in in as, as a federal judge so that's a problem they've got you know he's a federal what do they call it um the nomination yeah so it's it's just uh, i just can't um even bring my head to accept this is like you know um in, in the 16th and 17th centuries and 18th centuries where women were totally under the control of men or were being abused and completely oppressed mm. that's that's what this is all about like it, i read an article before it says that um trump is warning all men you know watch out men you know just remember women can vote you out of office we are living in in fear the women are terrorizing men you can't even pay them compliments all the sort of stuff that they say and then he was mocking ford at one of the presentations at a public meeting which is 
you know, it's so unbecoming of a person who's supposed to be the president of the USA. Hmm. How can you, as a politician, you you don't you can't afford to do that. You're alienating, insulting fifty percent of the population. She's a victim. You hmm. need to respect that, hmm. and he certainly did not do that. Hmm. You know. I it's, think it's it, just, oh. in the end, I think the lesson of um, I think what's happening now is it's not going to be we can't you know rely on these sort of um it's sort system, of whole system. system. Yeah. we need to actually rely. It's going to be it's going to be actually re- active resistance from working class yes. people against this. That's, that's hopefully right. going to be the one um, the thing to turn this over. There's already got to be a lot of pressure put onto some of these um, Republican um, senators and and so on to actually withdraw the nomination they, they, to vote they, they against it. In a lot of trouble. Sorry to interrupt there, but you know the fact is. Uh, the Democratic Socialist nominees out of Bernie Sanders' um, uh, groupings are coming to the fore and are being elected in many, many of these these um, electors. And one figure I heard was the Republicans are uh, for the the, the 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 prediction is that they could lose up to sixty seats mm. across America, which is a huge number of it's a ma- massive uh, turnaround yeah. for the. the well, I think um, one one of the sort of political contexts for why they're so keen to confirm Brent Kavanaugh's nomination is the midterm elections that's are right, coming up, and right. they're set to lose their majority at this that's point. That's what they think, and that's why he's terrified of. He knows it, but Trump isn't showing it, hmm. except for for steps he's taking to nominate this guy. I wonder if they can remove the whole bloody lot and renominate everybody. That that should you 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 can't have positions that are written in stone that you can't change mm. surely you know your democracy there has been has to be room for change anyway frustration frustration it's just, just really appalling how women are treated across these nations yeah. so-called democratic nations yeah. oxymoron uh, i might just play a few announcements and then we'll go move on to another uh discuss um news story or discussion okay welcome back to um green left with your radio listeners this is um 3cr of course, 855 on your AM dial. As um, Rod Quanta says, why do I have to tell you what you're listening to? Obviously, you know what you're listening to. Mm. <laughs> he always amuses me. Anyway, um, staying on the topic of women, something a bit more progressive and perhaps soothing to the soul, really. <laughs> a group of women calling themselves Geelong Women Unionist Network are organizing a conference this weekend. This normally would be put under announcement, but I wanted to give you a lot more detail about what it is that that's happening. It's called Working Women Get Organized. It's a one-day conference on the fight for equal pay. And it's, I went to the one last year, it was really good, very um, engaging and uh, very interesting to listen to, to what p- women are doing in the different areas um, to fight for women's rights, equal pay and so on. So the, the conference starts about 9 a.m. and the tickets are 15 unwaged, 30 waged. 40 Solidarity, and there's also a dinner, which is only $20, which is pretty cheap because they cook up a good meal. Okay, let's go through the um, program a little bit. Um, <clears throat> the keynote speaker, who will be speaking uh, in the evening during dinner, is Corinne Grant. She is the um, one of the members of the Media Entertainment Association and the ASU, <clears throat> and she will be speaking on... Um, She's also um, actually a, Maurice, uh, a lab, uh, 
sorry. She's also a lawyer from Morris Blackburn and presenter and writer. And she'll be speaking on the topic of women in female dominated industries, collectivism action versus individual action. So that'll be very interesting to listen to from a legal point of view and as a union member. So that's the end of the day. So for during the throughout the day, we we have um, a number of um, workshops and presentations. There's the nine forty five. We have changed the rules for working women, closing the gender gap, and the ACTU national campaign coordinator, Kara Keys, will be speaking. And ten a.m. the origins of women's oppression. So it's a historical perspective. Obviously, there's three people speaking on that one. Also unionists. Um, and after morning tea, you have stories from the front line with Lisa Darmanin, Darmanin, um, ASU branch secretary, and Lisa Fitzpatrick, and from the nurses union. Um, she. Oh, 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 yeah. The other thing is identifying and challenging everyday sexism with Janine Ria, who's the NTEU national president. And the third topic at the time of the day is a right to strike with the Victorian Trades Hall Women's team. So then you have lunch, and after lunch, um, an ad- address from the local member for parliament, uh, Christine Cousins. And at 2.20, you have union building and the fight for equal pay. Uh, Tilde Joy from the from Refu, Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, which has been very active lately to um, pinpoint and fight for workers who have been underpaid, who are not being paid a living wage even, um, will be speaking. Um, Carmel Hainlet and... Really, Fenchner from Early Educators United Voice. As you know, they've been fighting for um, increase in wages, and that is timely because if the ALP wants children to go to kinder three three years, and they consider the education of children is important, um, why aren't they paying the workers better wages? Hmm. If the education is that important to be a building block for the future for for these children, then. You need to pay the, the the teachers, the qualified, highly qualified teachers, better wages. I hope that will be one of the things she talks about. Um, Nahid Parisa, organizer for Victorian Trades Hall Migrant Workers Centre, will also be speaking under that in that um, time slot. So after after afternoon tea, you have um, rally posters, banners with "Reclaim the Night Women's Collective" in Geelong. Will be speaking, uh, public speaking, and preparation for rally. Building a campaign in the face of sexism with Anna Langford and Orlaith Belfranch from Hospital Voice. And there'll be a conference wrap up with Kara Keys, the ACT National Campaign Coordinator. So, overall, it'll be a very interesting and engaging day if you can um, take a short drive down. Um, or take a train. Yeah, you can take a train. Yes, that's that's a good point, especially with all the roadworks going on and if you're concerned about the uh, environment. That's a good way of travelling, yep. I guess. And it's a quick trip too. Yeah, it's, it's, just at that the, it's at Geelong Trades Hall, which is um, walking distance from the Geelong the station. station. Yeah, so we'd encourage people to get down there. Um, you'd have something to hang on to, given the way women are treated, not just across the world, but also in Australia. So, shall we go on to announcements? Oh, I've just. Oh, yes, I want to actually talk about one more issue before we go and do that. Yep. Um, this is an important announcement that 
Um, I'd like to do separately from the announcement sector because it is very important. It's been an ongoing battle. It's protecting our secretaries, calling all supporters in the Naram to stand in solidarity with the traditional owners. Minister for Road, Roads Luke Donnellan and the Labour State Government are planning to destroy secretaries that sit among a highly sensitive and significant landscape as part of the Vic Roads Western Highway duplication project. The current route interferes with cultural heritage and Vic Roads has not presented satisfactory options to save the trees and the surrounding areas. We demand the ministerial approval of the current route be revoked and that a process for an alternative route is initiated. Help keep us Keep the pressure up. Call Luke Donnellan's office, which is in Melbourne, 8392-6150, or you can email him at luke.donnellan, it's double N and double L, at parliament.big.gov.au. And if this act of cultural genocide occurs, vote him out of office in November. For more information, call 0415 one two zero hashtag no trees no treaty. So the number again zero four one five double four one two zero. The hashtag is of course no trees and no treaty. Right. Okay, I'll play a quick announcement and then we'll move on to the activist calendar. To a survival day, invasion day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shores. Subscribe to 3CR and help keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au. Subscribe now. Right, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, it is 8 a.m. Um, probably a number of you are probably getting ready to go to work at this point. Um, and so we're going to tell you about what's coming up in terms of the activist calendar. Um, and we're in this section, we will talk about the different upcoming activist events, forums, and other events that uh, you know left activist event um, that are coming up in Melbourne or even around Victoria. Um, so today there's going to be uh, Solidarity with Germans Got Coal Fight, Save the Hambachshire Forest, and that's going to be at 10 a.m. at the German Consulate. Um, consulate. Consulate um, <laughs> at the 11, which is at 118 Queen Street in the city, and it's organised by Quit Coal. Um, it's also on Facebook. Yeah. And there's also protests and gay conversion, um, Stop the Ex-Gay and Ex-Trans Movement, um, which is at 6pm at the State Library, and it's organised by the NUS. Um, on Saturday, the 6th of October, there'll be a diary launch, 2019, How to Make Trouble and Influence People. The diary features a radical event in Australian history for each day of the year, as well as stories and images covering Indigenous Australian resistance, strikes, street art, convict escapes, creative direct action, blockades, protests and occupations. And it's hosted by Ian Mc McIntyre. McIntyre. McIntyre at the Old Bar at 74 to 76 Johnson Street in and the city. It's, sorry, it's also a 3CR event, isn't it? Yeah, it's technically a 3CR event because it's a launch of a diary um, that where if you buy it, money, some of the money goes to 3CR. Yeah. So 7th of October, political comedy with Rod Quantock, 5.30pm. It's just $5. The Brunswick Green, um, 313 Sydney Road, Brunswick Facebook. 
It's, uh, it's also a Facebook event. So it's a political comedy with Robert Quantog. It's organized by the Brunswick Greens, I think. No, no, not, it's not organized by the Brunswick Green. The, the place is called Brunswick Green. The place is called Brunswick Green. It's very confusing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's it's organized by a sort of political – a group of political comedians. I forgot what they're called. <laughs> okay. So Tuesday, 9th of October, a forum, Political Correctness and the Rise of the Oh, right. no, that's um, wrong. Um, it's Monday – so the date is wrong, is it? Yep. It's Monday, October the 8th. Um, there's a forum, Political Correctness and the Rise of the Right. Um, Jeff Sparrow, Guardian column, columnist and author. Yep. 7 p.m. at the New International Workshop, Trades Hall 54, Victoria Street, Carlton. And yep. it's also on Facebook. Mm. Brunswick Peace Forum. That's on, that's on Tuesday, 9th of That's on Tuesday, 9th of October. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, candidates meeting. Um, so that should be interesting. Uh, 6 p.m. for a 7 p.m. start. Alderman, uh, 134 Ligon Street, Brunswick East, is also um, available on Facebook. Uh, 10th of October, film screening. Uh, it's a Wednesday. Guilty. Recreates the final 72 hours of the the life of Mayurun Sukumaran, who became an accomplished artist on Indonesia's death row. And, of course, we all know he was executed on the 29th of April in 2015. The panel discussion um, at 7 p.m., $20 at Cinema Nova, 380 Lagon Street, Carlton. That Friday, October the 12th, is um, Activist Expo for Stigma to, from Stigma, st- sorry, from Stigma to Dignity, Dissolving Poverty, Misconceptions and Promoting Solutions for Change, 1 to 6 p.m., Trades Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton South, hosted by the Australian Unemployed Workers Union and also available on Facebook. AW Branch Meeting, monthly meeting of the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, 3 p.m. Trades Hall as well. Rally in March, Reclaim the Night. The event will highlight the Royal Commission into Family Violence, the launch of Respect Victoria and the drafting of the, f- drafting of the first gender equity. Equality Bill. You want to do the next page, um, Jacob? Yep. On Friday, on that Friday, there will also be a film screening of Disaster Capitalism, which is a new documentary by best-selling journalist um, Anthony Lowenstein. Lowenstein, an award-winning um, an award-winning filmmaker for narrator. I know that's difficult. New narrator. Narrator. Um, <laughs> and that's going to be at seven p.m. at the New International Bookshop in Trades Hall. Um, on Saturday, the 13th of October, there's quite a lot of events happening. Um, so um, that conference, uh, Working Women Get Organised, will also be happening uh, Will be happening all day from, I think, 10 a.m., 9 a.m. Um, at the Geelong Trades Hall. Um, and then there'll be also in Melbourne a seminar, Lantern American Struggles and Resistance Movements, um, from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the Trades Hall, and um, it's hosted by LASNET. Um, there'll be um, there'll be a protest <laughs> counter rally to the march for babies um, oppose Bernie Finn um, opposing his anti-abortion religious police and the state controlling re- reproductive choices um, and there'll be a f- there'll be also be the free CR breakfast um, film. Hang on, hang on, before you go, it's at one p.m. at Parliament Str- Parliament uh, on Spring Street that counter rally counter rally to march for babies. Yeah, yep. you left out the last bit. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, left out. Sorry about that. Um, there's also um, a film screen. Life is on Waiting, Referendum and Resistance in Western Sahara, a film about the current struggle of the Sahara 
Sarawak, Sarawak people. people in their non-violent push for independence from neo-colonial forces with a live panel discussion on West Sahara. So that'll be happening at 6pm at the Loop Bar, 23 Myers Place in the city. Um, there'll be uh, music, George Mann and special guests live, 7pm at the meeting room at 3 at the Trades Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carton South, and it's hosted by the Industrial Workers of the World. On Sunday, October the 14th, um, there'll be a Melbourne Marathon Festival run for refugees. Join Team A ASRC as a member of the largest and best team taking part as we stand with people seeking asylum. That will be happening from 7am to 2pm at the Melbourne Cricket Ground. On Monday, October the 15th, there'll be a forum, Nauru's emerg- uh, Medical Emergency, Kids Off or and there'll be, at, um, there'll be a forum at 6.30pm at the A&MF, 555 Elizabeth Street in the city, and it's hosted by Refugee Action Collective. On Tuesday, October the 16th, there'll be a Canberra Convergence, Refugee Action Now, um, and assemble lawns behind Old Parliament House. On Tuesday, October the 16th, there'll be a Peter Norman Human Rights Summit. Join us to honour Peter Norman's decision to support Tommy Smith and John Carlos on the Olympic dice in Mexico City on October the 16th, 1968, and they'll be at 10am to 4pm at um, Unitarian um, Peace Memorial Church at 1110. Unitarian. Yeah, um, there'll be a public mean to save public housing at Walker Street. Um, you know, Walker Street, uh, Northgate's Walker Street public housing state is at risk of sale as a public lands asset under the public housing renewal program, and they'll be happening at six pm at the Northgate Town Hall Centre, one eight, which is at one eight nine High Street in Northgate. Um, there'll be film screening, Salute, and I'll Stand With You, um, two films focused on Australian, um, Australian Peter Norman Solidarity, the 1968 Mexico City Olympics with two US black power athletes and the price they all paid. And so they'll be happening at 6.45pm at the Acme Centre. Um, on Saturday, October the 12th, 20th, there'll be um, music, Woody Sons of Freedom, um, celebrate one of the greatest folk singers of all time with the this event dedicated to the life and culture from known of Woody Guthrie. This concept brings to life the struggles against inequality Racism, war, and fashion, which were deeply, which were felt deeply throughout the 12th, 20th century. Um, so they'll be 8 p.m. at the Melbourne Recital Centre, um, 31 Stewart Street in South Bank. Do you want me to finish up while you call um, the next interview person? Yep. Is that okay. Okay, the next event, sorry um, to interrupt that, um, October 21st uh, is music time. It's rocking for West Papua, 3 to 11 p.m. And the cost is only ten dollars. Howler, um, seven to eleven Dawson Street, Brunswick. Uh, Facebook, it's on Facebook. And there's a protest, Children's March for Nauru, a peaceful, um, safe and inclusive event to bring children and young people together to protest the inhumane detention of children and other refugees on Nauru. Eleven a.m. Birong Ma in the city. And it's also on Facebook. October 25th um, forum, free speech, fighting back against right-wing hypocrisy. When nine-year-old Harper Nielsen was attacked by writing racist, but she refused to stand up for the national anthem. The whole issue of who has a right to free speech and under what circumstances um, hit the front page. Speakers Jeff Sparrow, journalist and author Sally Goldner, CEO of Transgender Violence, six. 30 p.m. there'll be a meal, or meal at 6 p.m., um, at the Resident Centre, which is five, level 5407 Swanson Street, 27th of October, 
we had, there's a rally on for um, Nauru and Manison crisis. Bring them here. So uh, there's a call to join um, others who are, who are protesting this. Uh, it's a 2 p.m. State Library, 20, uh, 328 Swanson Street. is organized by the Refugee Collective. There's a demand um, that the camp, camps be closed. October 31st, there's a book launch, Unmarked Graves, Death and Survival in the Anti-Communist Violence in East Java, Indonesia. The anti-communist violence was swept across Indonesia between 65 and 66, produced a particular high death toll in East Java. So it, is, it also transformed the lives of hundreds of thousands of survivors who faced decades of persecution and violence. Speaker Vanessa Herman, who's quite an expert in this area, she's written... Um, many, many um, articles on this, so it should be worth listening to. Friday, 2nd November, Red Cinema, I Am Not Your Negro. So that's being shown, uh, it's organized by Green Left Weekly, 6.30 p.m. and 6 p.m. for a meal at the Residence Center 407 Swanson Street. So let's go for a break and then we can talk to Daniel Wallace. By way of introduction, this is Daniel Wallace with us on the phone. Daniel Wallace is the secretary of the Hunter Workers, the old Newcastle Trades and Labour Council. From your perspective as, you know, unionist, can you tell us, you know, why the TPP is bad for workers? There's been no independent assessment on the the economic impact, the social impact in those regional areas, so that's a concern. Um, There's some concerns about the ability to have a dispute and refuse um, trading items in countries that have still um, you know, poor labour rights, um, you know, child labour, those sorts of things. There's a process that's got to go through that we say is just too... Um, it's not strong enough. It should be an easier process when there's been clearing, um, concise breaches of it. The fact that a foreign corporation can sue the government when they're not even giving the right to um, Australian businesses to sue the government, Um, not that we support anyone going about um, suing the government in that matter, but the fact that they're giving the right to foreign corporations and hiding behind the fact that they've excluded just um, tobacco as one measure that can be sued against, it still... Um, allows the ability for these financial corporations to sue the government for changes to industrial law. And that flies in the face of the Change the Rules campaign where we want to change industrial law and it gives Labor the ability to hide behind it and say, well, we've got this trade agreement in place and we we can't make those changes without facing being sued. Mm. So that's interesting because I interviewed Professor Mitchell from Swinburne um, a few months ago on this TPP question, and he said that um, industrial disputes uh, that we normally have here, um, once a TPP is signed, cannot be heard uh, in Australia because those disputes will then be taken outside Australia uh, beyond the the industrial laws of Australia to be addressed. How 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 true is that from your point of view? What did you hear about it? Well, it's not just um, my point of view. It actually says it in Labor policy. Um, it says that by bringing in... It said that Labor policy rejects the, the investor-state disputes. Um, it's the 
procedure that's in place in all trade agreements and it says that it will affect Australia's judicial independence and the Australian people's sovereign right to legislate and implement policies um, that support their interests through democratic processes. And that's wording straight out of Labor's national platform. Mm. Um, and they, they've said that it will bring all that into jeopardy, yet they've gone and supported it, which has just left the union movement dumbfounded. Mm. So it's, it's a fundamental breach of workers' rights, isn't it? Um, I'm also wondering, what what did you understand that, you know, that the TPP can bring to Australians as a whole? What are the advantages of being part of the TPP? Was there any, any explanation about that? Well, with the US withdrawing from the TPP, with the with, with withdrawing from yeah. the TPP, it reduces the coverage, coverage 40% of global double GDP to 13.5%. Mm-hmm. And the, the you know, um, um, bank uh, results came in and said you know, over 15 years it would add, would add um, 0.771% uh, um, to GDP over a 15 period, but likely the cost of cost only is up to 40,000. Okay. Um, now, what I asked you is what's, what are the advantages um, of Australia being part of the TPP? Well, we, we don't know exactly what they are. They have... There haven't been a, um, a lot of information provided um, about the advantages. If there was a lot of advantages, you'd think that the uh, Labor MPs would be out there spruiking how good this is for Australian businesses, but the fact that they've gone cold on the issue and um, they don't even want to really discuss it publicly, um, I think the, that says it all. Yeah, um, We've already got trading agreements with eight of the 11 uh, countries involved, um, so we're not exactly sure in what areas um, there is going to be the benefit. And this is what's a concern. Without all that information, how are they possibly making a decision against their own party's platform? And then um, how can they possibly caucus hmm. on a decision that breaches the platform? Hmm. Um, yeah, leaves the ability for those members to um, do something about it. I believe. Yep, that's a fair call. Okay, and the sort of last question I kind of want to ask you, Daniel, um, is what is sort of your response in light of your kind of decision um, to resign from the ALP? Kind of what is your your response to you know the kind of pressure you might be facing from you know other people, other your colleagues in the union movement and in the Labor Party on you know why you don't no longer think it's a viable option to be a member of the Labor Party? Well, I don't think uh, I haven't seen any pressure placed. Uh, as yet from anyone within the union movement or the Labor Party. Um, I've always made decisions based on what I believe in the best interests for workers. Um, when I took the job at Tradesall four years ago, we grew from 33,000 members to 70,000 members um, by bringing in um, a number of unions on the basis that we look after the best interests of workers. And this is a clear example of where we needed to make a decision um, that contradicted my own personal views about the party and um, I wanted to make sure that I, I followed off with what I said about a few years ago and that is making sure we're looking after the best interests of workers and doing what's possible to ensure that they're looked after. Hmm. That's a fair call too because um, you, you, you are a member of a party because you hope to 
have a party that supports workers, uh, simple as that. So that's good to know. I hope that the trade hall um, uh, hunters, hunter workers supports your decision as well. Yeah, well, we've got a lot of support. We've got a, um, a lot of our unions contacting MPs um, as we speak today. And next week, there was a major meeting with the Unions New South Wales uh, yesterday, and uh, they've started contacting a number of MPs Mm. about um, you know, potentially breaching the platform and what can be done about it. Okay. And um, other trade halls, regional trade halls, are part of this campaign yet? Well, we've heard um, from reports about uh, some work that's getting done in Victoria um, at yesterday's conference, um, some work in Queensland by the AMW. And we see that the AMW and the ECU and the Meat Workers Union are, are three unions that um, are leading the way on it. Uh, the MUA have been clear from the start that um, their position is opposed to it. So there's a lot of support um, from some of the major unions. Uh, but, yeah, really, a lot of it lies, they believe, with the with the AWU and the SBA mm. being able to convince their MPs. Sounds good. We would love to keep a close eye on that one. Thank you so much, Daniel. Sorry about the technical um, screw-ups here. Uh, but we shall uh, visit you again once this campaign gets a bit more um, into, into gear. Um, so thank you for being available. Not a problem. Thanks. Thank Bye. Bye. Um, this brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show... And interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.